0: Mr. Jake
1: Wolke, how are you? well, thanks Dr. Max, happy to be here. Great, well um, this is our first uh, public discussion, first discussion with a farmer, so thanks for being here. Let's start this conversation with a bit of background on you and how you got into farming and then maybe if you can talk a little bit about your farming philosophy and how that's different to a lot of conventional uh, animal agriculture that's happening at the moment?
0: Yeah, sure. Look, my my family were German immigrants off the boat about 60 years ago, and my grandfather, Klaus, who's the patriarch of the family, uh, pretty quickly assumed a role of being self-employed and, and, a, and a business operator, a retailer, had a s- slew of different businesses, uh, actually had a, a small piggery, that in South Australia, you know, going back almost 60 years, had some continental delis, did some um, share farming with butternut pumpkins and onions and that sort of thing. And my father and my, my mother have been self-employed my whole life. And about five years ago, when my first son, Otto, was born, we started spending a bit more time around the house. And I was, I was busy working in retail, as my family's uh, pedigree is, I guess. And I thought, while I'm you know, at home while my son Otto naps or whatever, I want to be doing something a little bit more fulfilling than watching telly or flicking through um, the internet or you know, whatever other options would normally be there. When you, when you have heaps of time, you use it really poorly. And then when your time starts getting taken away from you or, or, or divided among your uh, worthwhile things that you're chasing in your life, For me anyway, I started to think a little bit about how I could use that time a bit more efficiently. So I thought, I'm home all the time. I'm going to, or more than I used to be, I'm going to start to do a bit of gardening and dig a little veggie patch in the back. And we started becoming interested in what we were eating and what we're putting in our children's body. And I went down this rabbit hole on YouTube looking at market gardening, organic market gardening, no-till, I found this guy called Justin Rhodes, who had a really cool vlog where he would go around visiting all these different regenerative farmers in America. And I think it might have been the first video I was watching, which he was with a market gardener, a little thumbnail on the side of YouTube came up and it said something like, uh, the title of the video was something like, this man buys land for $30 an acre. And I'm like, I know that's clickbait,
1: but I'm
0: going to press that. I can't help myself. That video was him touring Hollyface Farm, Joel Salatin's property, and talking about how the infrastructure he implements lets him, at, at a cost of $30 an acre, lets him double his productivity, hmm. uh, and I was hooked after that. My family had a hobby block, like a, a bit of a lifestyle block that you could ride a horse on or a motorbike, and I talked my folks into letting me overrun it. And uh, it went from a few chickens to lots of chickens and cows and pigs and and the whole lot. So that's sort of my – I'm a real – I get really – what's the word? I get very – not fascinated, addicted, compulsive, more, more, more. I'm a bit of a collector in this farming thing. I just went down that rabbit hole. Yeah, great.
1: So at the moment, the Walkie Farm is quite a big operation that you're running down in Albury, New South Wales, Australia, uh, and you have – the farm, you have a butchery, you have a bike shop, you've got a couple of things going on. So can you give us an idea about what the scale of operation and what you're producing at the moment and, and how the farm is currently being run?
0: Yeah, sure thing. So we're a, we're a mixed enterprise, direct to market, regeneratively run family farm on our property at the moment. We we're in our, our third year of production. So we started our, you know, at, at very grassroots level, literally 200 chick- egg-laying chickens, and that was it in 2019. Uh, at the moment, we're running 1,000 laying hens. We're doing about 200 to 300 broilers every three weeks, which broilers are, is a meat chicken, pasture-raised broilers. I've got a mob of about 120 cattle, so 60 breeding cows, and the rest are a mi- mixture of calves and finisher steers and bulls, that sort of thing. Uh, at any one time, we could have anywhere from 40 to 100 pigs. Last year, we we finished about 200 pigs, about 180 pigs all up for the year. And then there's a heap of little uh, peripheral supportive uh, in- industries on the farm. We've got a market garden there, little orchard. We've got about 30 beehives, all those sorts of, you know, none of them uh, make bank, so to speak, but they, they add value. We've already got customers who are coming to us for eggs and beef, so to provide them a Stick of broccoli or a jar of honey is a really nice value add there. And like you said, we've got our own butchery. So, very early on into our direct to market adventure, I saw that the, the biggest bottleneck right in front of me was getting our animals processed. I, I interviewed and, and applied with a heap of local butchers to get my animals chopped up, and they, they, Weren't always fond of my animals because I was growing them too big to what conventional standards were. And maybe sometimes I had too much fat or not enough fat because I was, I was learning, I was finding my feet. The The capacity for these butcheries was very small. You know, they're little mum and dad own shops too. And they're very busy making sure that their glass cabinets got all the nice displays to pay their bills. Hmm. the last thing they need is a guy like me coming in and going, I need my, my orders that you said would be ready. I've got my deliveries to make. And that was only doing, back then I was doing a body of beef a month and two pigs a month. And I thought, I can't even pay a salary with this. And I I can't, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of using four or five different butchers in town. The consistency and the the headache of that would be completely up the wazoo. And quite fortuitously, a local butchery freehold that's been one of the most well-known butcheries in Albury for about 75 years called Peters and Sons, the building came up for sale, the The business had just closed and the building came up, so we purchased that, my wife and I, under our new company we just set up called Walkie World. And we renovated, filled it with equipment. I'd never held a knife to cut up meat before, and I still haven't. Put put on a butcher, Richie, he's a fantastic butcher, and now we're operating with two full-time butchers in there, processing all of our protein, and we're also doing custom processing for about a dozen other local producers. So anyone who wants to get their animal chopped up to their cut request, cryback bag, branded sticker on it, uh, the whole lot. Now, the butchery is not the abattoir. A lot of people go, so how do you kill them? The, the butchery is a, it's called a cold processing room, so it, mm-hmm. it's a meat processing room. We receive the carcass from the abattoir yeah. and then we break it down to the consumer's need. We still have to use third-party abattoirs. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are very motivated and uh, we, we, we view it as necessary that we will have our own abattoir one day, but there's a String of things we need to tick before we get there.
1: Mm, fantastic. So I guess for most people who are unfamiliar with uh, agriculture and with cattle, what I guess the image that that we can create or that we can envision for what you're doing down there is a very much local, holistic type of agricultural operation where you're raising the cattle. You but you not only have cattle, you have pigs, you have uh, meat birds, you have sheep, you have all these other um, animals kind of being raised at the same property and then you're basically feeding your local community in that that local area and you mentioned just at the beginning uh, briefly about Joel Salatin and for those people who don't know uh, Joel Salatin and his farm the polyface farm in the US is one of the I guess the paragons of of regenerative successful regenerative farming so can you talk a little bit about this holistic management and and the, the regenerative farming model and how you're emulating or how you're innovating on that and how is that different to what mm. most people most cattle farmers in australia are doing for the people who are going down to the supermarket and just buying their meat from from the supermarket
0: i guess with with cattle the there's two real production models in australia that are paramount Uh, at the forefront of the volume producers and one is what we would call set stocking and the other one's what we would call feed lossing. So set stocking is a heap of animals in a big paddock and they're allowed to graze there a really long time because you've got enough land to support that amount of animals. Now that's really dumbing it down and making it seem really uh, doughy I guess. You know most farmers will rest their paddocks but they might have their animals in there for a month. Mm-hmm. And, then they'll, and then they'll move them to another paddock for a month in this really slow, uh, gooey rotation that doesn't simulate or mimic natural models at all. Mm-hmm. So we call that set stocking. And then the other one's feedlotting. So, you know, the, an enormous amount of beef and lamb it, it, and I guess factory pig farms are feedlots as well uh, just big outdoor areas or a, or, a, or a big shed, a factory, where they pen all the animals in so they've got a really close proximity to water and feed and they just pour in grain all day and just help these things get really fat really quick so they can hit their production benchmarks. Mm -hmm. And both of those have environmental consequences. The reason that that meat is efficient and cheap is because the environment and the animal's welfare are picking up the tab for that. So what we do in our production model is we look at how these animals exist in nature. And we, we observe that, and we study it, and then we go back to the farm, and we earnestly try our best to pay respect to the way that they function in nature. So to, to paint a really simple picture for everybody, if no one's thought about this before, but herbivores, big big animals like bison and, and buffalo and, and the cows and aurochs, whatever else, they migrate. Mm -hmm. They'll be in a huge big mob. There could be a million of them, you know, tens of thousands, whatever the size might be. And you can imagine that if they turn up to a little prairie to have a feed of grass, the grass runs out really quick. So they just got to keep marching. And they're always going on to fresh grass. So that means that these pastures are only getting chewed down for a couple of days. Mm -hmm. And then by the time they come back on the next migration, it's had a really long rest period. So that's a really simple way of talking about holistic grazing. So we do that on our farms with some electric wire. We pen the animals up really tight. And then every day we move them onto a new patch of ground and we've just seen tremendous uh, strides in production output, uh, soil quality. And the number one thing for me that, you know, with only three years into this journey and the almost daily feedback I'm getting from our consumers that I was allergic to beef, but I can eat yours. I couldn't eat eggs, but yours doesn't upset me. And all the time people say that, Factory farm pork gives them stomach cramps and diarrhea and all these sorts of short-term ailments. But mine, they feel light afterwards. You know, like they could go and work in the garden a little bit. They don't have to lay down and pour all their energy into digesting and coping with the pain. And I really believe that that's a a, a sign from natural production models that you're, you're doing things better. You know, I, I would never say that we're doing it perfectly. We're, we're always trying to improve and there's always things to learn. It's a very nuanced game, farming, but I think just giving animals respect. And for me, welfare means uh, treating them in the context of their natural expression. So, you know, our industry is pretty hell-bent at the moment that welfare means not sick or, if sick, treated really quickly. You know, like a a big egg factory would say they have high-level welfare because their mortality rates are down because they don't let – because it's all caged in there's no wild birds that can come in and pass diseases and they're so happy that they've got this high standard of welfare because their birds, birds never get diseases. Well, it's a really thin paradigm to look at what welfare is. You know, for me, birds are meant to be outside. It's pretty, you know, no, nowhere in wild do they build their own shed and hang out in there all day. So we're just trying to respect those natural models.
1: Yeah, that, and that's fascinating. and And I think the most interesting thing, Um, from a medical point of view. And I guess my approach or my thoughts about human health is how striking the analogy is between these regenerative versus conventional agricultural uh, approaches and then the conventional um, pharmaceutical-based medical approach versus more dietary and holistic kind of lifestyle approaches. And as you said, the mainstream or the conventional agricultural Agriculture is satisfied if a metric like bird mortality um, doesn't increase above a certain number. Same with conventional medicine. You know, the conventional paradigm is happy if LDL cholesterol is equal to or below an arbitrary cutoff. So it's, it's fascinating that both approaches aren't holistically looking at the entire organism. What are the holistic... Uh, indices or, or markers of optimal health, not just uh, surviving, but how can we help these birds, these cows, these pigs, and these humans thrive optimally? And what you are doing, and what the regenerative agricultural movement in general is doing, which I am which I admire so much, is is allowing or or performing the type of agricultural techniques that is producing the most nutrient dense food, the most the highest quality. Uh, food and that's allowing us we call it
0: healing food
1: healing food yeah exactly and that's allowing people to heal and allowing us to help recommend diet and lifestyle that that actually helps patients improve and and heal themselves so that that's that's fascinating and would you say that what you've just described in terms of the regenerative approach is a third is the third approach so you've said the feedlot the the stocking approach your approach is a, a basically a third approach? Is that how you describe it?
0: Well, I, I think it's a viable uh, replacement model, but there's there's plenty of hurdles that the industry needs to cross before it gets real, genuine uh, mass production traction. And that's not to say it can't do it. That's, that's a little uh, riff that... You know, we're, we're in a in a Western democracy that's got a big government and big government sets policy that normally favours big business. And I don't want to get all political. I don't know if you want to have a political podcast mm-hmm. here, but the the regulation that my small stacked enterprise farm goes through to do what we do is uh, at times onerous. And it is look, you know, I just look around and I've, I've got a prove all these things. And, and I'm not against, uh, I guess, I'm not completely laissez-faire, 100%. No one should be accountable for anything. But when I, I just think things should be measured on an outcome-based. I'd be really happy with an outcome-based system. So if we could just test the, the test our meats or, or our eggs and see that they're good quality and no one's getting hurt and then maybe we didn't have to wade through quite so much bureaucracy because we don't have the time or the cash that uh, big ag can throw at these things. So I think we're definitely a viable model But the, the region world has some work to do to, I guess, or organize maybe, um, and arm up a little bit to protect ourselves and, and pave the way it's, it's not easy to get into. There's a lot of roadblocks in agriculture, you know, land access. So you, hard enough to find land, then you've got to finance animals, and then learn, you can Google things all you like, but you got on the boots experience to produce these models. And then you throw some uh, bureaucracy and hurdles to market access in there. And I'm definitely not trying to talk anybody out of it, because it's a worthwhile endeavor. Nothing worthwhile comes easy, for sure. But it it is a third option. And I I think long term, it's the only option. I I think options one or two are going to fall over. You know, we're, we're paying, we're feeding people cheap food for a cheap price. And I say that specifically, the food's cheap. I don't believe there's much in it. You look around at how sick everyone is. You know, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go down to the beach at Bondi and say, we're looking like an epitome of health here, and, here in the west Western world at the moment. And then the food doesn't cost much. And like I said earlier, someone picks up the tab for that. And I think the tab's being picked up all over the place. Staff working in crappy environments. I, nearly all my farm hands have worked in feedlots in the past. And they're very happy not to be in a feedlot anymore for a multitude of reasons. And we've got people's health suffering. We've got the animal's welfare, you know, being exploited. And then we've got, a, you know, mass environmental degradation, desertification of, you know, marginal grazing lands and all sorts of things. So our food's being subsidized by all these things. So long-term, a, a production model that respects the animal and the environment, because when you look after the, the welfare of the environment, Sorry, when you look after the welfare of an animal specific to the context of that animal, the environment's automatically looked after. Does that make sense? It if you
1: does, you've got a yeah. big
0: factory farm full of pigs, all of a sudden you've got Malua lagoons and you've got so much centralized manure that you're going to have to have these, all these policies and procedures and measuring the groundwater and all, all of this. And then you're going to be re- resorting to ongoing use of antibiotics and, and worming agents, and ivermectin, and all these things to look after your pigs. But if you put pigs outside, it's it's not enough. You can put pigs in a pen and never move them. You're going to end up at a pretty similar position. You, you're going to compact the crap out of the ground. You're going to have animals with high worm loadings again, all of these ongoing issues. But when you look in the wild, pigs turn up, they pug up an area, they make wallows, they camp out there for two or three weeks, and then all the peripheral feed has all disappeared because they go out on their little saunters every day and they graze this and root that up and within their proximity of their wallow camp they've exhausted everything that might take them two weeks might take them a month but then they go away somewhere else and so it gets a really high impact for a short amount of time and then a long recovery pattern uh, long recovery period very much the same to the cattle grazing so there is nuance to it but it doesn't deplete the commons I think we have to be more open-eyed about protecting and enhancing the environmental commons that we all need.
1: Yeah, and I guess uh, that's a really interesting point because for the average consumer who isn't intentional or mindful about the produce that they're buying, they might ask, you know, why should I buy regenerative or fully grass-fed, um, grass-finished or, or free-range pork? And I guess they're, every everyone is very much disconnected from the source of their food and the process by which the the food is raised and then the journey it takes from the paddock all the way to the plate so to me it seems like a system that you describe of indoor housing and and um you know industrial uh, raising these type of techniques they they can thrive and if if especially if people aren't paying attention or aren't conscious or, or observing what what and how uh, their food is being raised?
0: These, I, th- I think we've got a large portion of the consumer market that's reasonably ignorant to current production models. We do free farm tours very regularly, so sometimes in, if it's peak spring and it's beautiful and it's not too wet, we might do one every weekend. Otherwise, through wet seasons, we'll calm down and do them monthly or something like that. People love coming out and picking up a chicken and looking at the pigs roll around in the mud and uh, have discussions. Sometimes my tours go for four or five hours as we have community discussion and conversation throughout the tour. But inevitably, when people are looking at something, so they go, Jake, so when I go to the supermarket and buy free-ranged eggs, this is what those are, isn't is it? And well. we'll you know, what you're looking at here with my pastured egg model is starkly different to what certified free range eggs are in the industry, which is a set stock environment where birds in a shed generally have access to one meter square each. So, a thousand birds will have access to a thousand meter square where they can go outside, they cannot go outside, it doesn't get rotated, it becomes barren like a desert. And people just don't know this. They're already, uh, trying to actively vote with their dollars at the supermarket by going, I'm not going to buy the $4 caged eggs. I'll buy the $6 free range eggs, but it's a little bit of a hoax. It, it's, it's no doubt a step in the right direction, but to pretend that it's the answer, I think if consumers could actually see what that reality was, they would they would not accept it as the answer, the majority of people. So you know, for us, farm tours are an integral point of a part of showing what we do, and then not trying to rubbish the rest of the industry, but having a conversation just to educate people about actually how their animal and how their meat protein they're eating is being raised.
1: Mm. And the interesting point you raise about um, the nutrient quality of of your food versus, say, the the supermarket food. And I believe it was Joel Salatin uh, on a recent podcast who made the comment that they had their the folate level of their eggs uh tested compared to uh supermarket and other other farms and the the difference in in the quantity of folate which is a very important essential nutrient for a range of bodily processes was something on i believe it was a 10x difference yeah. it was incredible and that's something maybe that I guess you might be interested in the future, which is actually quantifying and getting some hard data to to show consumers and say, hey, look, you can you can go and get your your um, feedlot beef, and you might be getting X amount mm. of um, Y nutrient, but you know, walkie beef, you're getting multiple factors of of more nutrient density, and that might again be a, an, another consideration for a consumer who. Would might initially be reluctant to pay maybe a small premium for a regenerative product.
0: Absolutely. We already buy our food based on so many metrics, you know, how many grams are in the bag, or it'll say, you know, extra vitamin A or low carb or something. But again, it's a consumer education thing. They need to be given the whole image of what they're buying. Just because the eggs are cheaper doesn't mean, you know, you, you might need to eat two of those eggs to one of these. So paying 50% more for the better egg that you only need to eat one of to feel full or satisfied or enjoy or nourish your body. All of a sudden, it's not that expensive anymore. I've actually stopped using the word, the phrase nutrient-dense for our foods, and I've started using the phrase healing foods for the reason that I haven't quantified the nutrient density of our food. So I was using it because I believe the models that we have create a nutrient-dense product but I was like, hang, hang on a second. I can't actually back that up at the moment. So I'm in um, discussions with the local university here to do some. It's, it's, it's long-winded. You know, I wish, I wish I could just put some steak in a box and send it. Maybe I need to start looking further afield. But yeah. I'd love to be able to uh, send one of everything off. Send a chicken off, a, a pork chop, a scotch fillet. Uh, we do dairy cows too. We retire dairy cows. I'd love to know. These dairy cows that have essentially uh, been feed lotted for for a portion of their diet for the main part of their life, I'd love to know how they stack up stack up to our other grass fed and finished beef. All these different things. So that's something that I'm definitely wanting to do uh, moving forward. But I've stopped using that phrase when I'm when I'm plugging myself because I'm a salesman at heart, and I started using the phrase healing foods because for the like can't quantify that either because I haven't had a doctor come in and through all the whiz-bang, the feedback we get almost daily that I mentioned before that I couldn't eat that before. I had a lady order a monthly meat box. We do a $150 taste the farm box. It's about five kilos of mixed meat. It's sort of like a CSA box, community-supported agriculture. Yeah, It gets a base of mints and snags across all the different animals, lamb, beef, pork, chicken, and then I top it up with prime and secondary cuts that I've got surplus of, so everybody basically gets the same box. And Mm -hmm. one lady, I don't let people request what they want, but I do let them say we don't want. You know, some of my customers are Muslim and they don't want pork in their box or whatever it might be. So I let them have uh, no please requests. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. if I say yes, please, everyone will say extra scotch, extra bacon and and I'll have no scotch and bacon left. And this lady that ordered this box said, I only want a very small amount of beef because my husband eats beef, but I can't eat it. I get crazy indigestion and I break out in hives, a rash, skin rash all over my body. And, and gets headaches and a multitude of things. I'm thinking, you're eating. Like, I've, I've heard people have all sorts of reactions to foods, but not these sorts of reactions to beef. Mm. She felt so good after eating our chicken and pork that she took a spoonful of the mints her husband cooked that one night or whatever it might have been, and no reaction. So the next time we had beef, she tried a little bit more, and I got a phone call on her from her about a week ago. She goes, this month's box, put the normal amount of pork in. I can eat pork again. <laughs> the first time I could eat por- uh, sorry, beef, I'm getting my words getting I can eat beef again first yeah. time in 10 or 15 years or so and I hear that stuff nearly every single day and it blows my mind and I don't have a conclusive yet yeah, it's because of the vitamin A or it's the beta carotene or whatever mm. I just know that whatever we're doing for the people that we're touching in our community it's working for them uh, so we're going to keep moving forward with that
1: that's I mean that's a fascinating anecdote and I guess it sounds like you're building up a collection of anecdotes it it reminds What's me what of
0: the, the the what do they say the the
1: the pull, the pool of anecdotes is, isn't data or maybe it is
0: it, it, yeah <laughs> is is data I, I would suggest
1: <laughs> yeah yeah I mean I would as well it reminds me of I remember a patient I saw in in the emergency department a couple years ago and it was an infant who had extremely severe food allergies and uh, atopy and the, the the child was incredibly allergic to uh, antibi- a range of antibiotics and the mum had mentioned to me that when she was breastfeeding if she ate some conventionally raised meat from the supermarket that that day or that following that meal and she was breastfeeding the child it was enough to she'd noticed her herself empirically that it was associated with a rash in in that baby's breastfeeding through through her and i mean t- take from that what you will yeah. uh, but it was a, it was an interesting anecdote and it's suggestive of the well, it's suggestive that there's probably a, a degree of of antibiotics and hormones that are that are getting into the food supply from conventionally raised animals and some people are obviously more sensitive than others. So, I mean, it's fantastic for you to be able to offer a product like that that is solving someone's um, beef intolerance. And, and we re- we know beef, it's an incredibly uh, important source of bioavailable heme iron. It's an incredibly important um, food, especially for, for well, anyone, but especially for, for this lady, for elderly people, everyone needs A good bioavailable source of animal protein and iron so i mean hats off to you for actually being able to make a product that is so readily and concretely solving her that nutritional problem
0: well it's it's out of all the jobs i've had over my life it's highly rewarding being able to feed somebody something that they couldn't previously eat and and especially when you know it's a red meat protein that's as valuable for human health like beef is, like you just articulated. It's interesting you comment before about the the antibiotics and and the grain. I'm not sure what else you sort of rolled into how the uh, reasons why the factory farmed beef might not be performing quite the same. My wife and I talk about this all the time because my wife uh, struggles with gluten and dairy and both of those things come out of very – uh, intensely farmed environments with lots mm. of inputs going on, mm. and we there's no one hill that I'm currently prepared to die on, like antibiotics are the evil, or the drenchings the evil, or the feeding the grain the cows the evil. But the more you look into it, the more you realise that there's there's dozens and dozens of one percenters. That's how, that's how I view them. Yeah, the, the, the cows are so good at converting feed into high-quality beef that may be grain by itself. If that was just a small part of the puzzle, wouldn't be the absolute end of the world. But then you've got uh, all these vaccination regimes and then the antibiotics on top of it, and then the fact that they're allowed to stand in a dam and pee and poo in it while they're drinking with all their brothers and sisters, and they're sucking in feces and urine, and then that they're allowed to graze so close to the ground and they're ingesting uh, parasite loading off the soil surface. And yada, yada, yada. And then in Australia, you look at we've got old ancient soils that have never supported animals like cows before. So who's even to suggest that if you put them in the the paddock and, and manage them properly, they're going to get the absolute best outcome as it was. Like maybe they will, but like we don't really know that. It's not really, it's sort of a bit of a stab in the dark as far as I'm concerned. And then there's just so many one percenters along there that I look at it and I think we just need to turn the dial on enough of them. And so, like I said, I don't think there's any silver bullet. But when you respect a natural processing model, or a production model, nature's model, a lot of those things, like for instance, we don't let our animals drink out of waterways. All riparian areas on the farm are fenced off. Everything, even if there's a little divot in the paddock the size of the bench behind me, we throw a hot wire around it. We, don't, we, we try very hard to never let animals in water. They can have the water that's right there, but we'll just throw a pump in it and pump it to a trough, so they can't pee and poo in it. And I wouldn't even know how to drench a cow. You know, we've been going for four years. I've had a couple hundred cows come through the farm. I've got breeding animals on the farm. You know, in the beginning, when I said I wasn't going to drench, because I'd read that's how you do it by other regenerative farmers. Everyone was giving me the feedback. Oh, we'll just wait. You know, twelve months down the track, you're going to need to drench. It's all ideally idealic now, but you're going to get caught out no parasite issues when you're respecting these natural principles of you know not letting them drink out of the toilet
1: mm. that's fascinating and again i just what when you described that what accumulation of 1% is again it I draw, i'm drawing an analogy to human health and the development of uh, insulin resistance and uh, metabolic syndrome in people <clears throat> which is is basically a, a diagnosis that isn't really being made and it possibly isn't, you know, excess carbs or carbs by themselves, but it's the combination of the, the refined carbs it added to the pesticides, the herbicides, or potentially the glyphosate that's sprayed on the carbs. And then the, of the refining of the carbs into a processed food that is also um, with uh, polyunsaturated seed oils, that have also been refined and then you you add in the sedentary lifestyle you add in the the disturbed circadian rhythm and each of them individually become component causes that of course are sufficient in aggregate to cause disease so again it's it's fascinating these analogies and how we can draw analogies from agriculture to human health and in both cases when we dial back that intervention we dial back the human the human refined refinery and refined techniques and let nature and abide by by how it was done in a, in a natural way the, the organism heals itself I mean that that it's striking to me that that similarity it's
0: that well you know we, we are nature we're not separate to nature you know something that that really gets up my grill is talking to people about my cattle and how they're burping out methane and they're bad for the environment. And there's a contextual discussion around that because of the uh, emissions from factory farming and feedlots, yada, 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 where the cows aren't allowed to be put into an environment where they can help pastures sequester carbon, all these things that um, anyone half-educated grasps. Mm. But I I don't know, there's a lot of... There's a lot of nuance on the table that needs to be uh, considered with that. I think one of the things that I find really interesting about the grain discussion, and I heard Zach Bush talk about it quite a few years ago, I think, but he, ta- he talked about how when we used to be eating grains, they were obviously older heirloom varieties, which we aren't you know, producing anymore. And most of the wheat, the barley, the corn are all um, single crops that we've grown for efficiency so there's no variety in the crops anymore but that's that's one thing but then he started talking about the the mills that we're using now and instead of old rough stone mills now we're using metal mills and the surfaces are so refined that they're able to make the the flour so fine that it changes chemical properties or or structure or whatever it might be and becomes harder to digest and i'm way out of my comfort zone like I'm i'm off the deep end here but you just think about for me i just it's all about context, so you just look about how, the, how have humans been eating this for thousands of years than how we've we been eating it for the last 40 years, and it's not the same. You know we've, we've got a couple of rules in our household about what we eat, and I think that they're the good rules for everyone, but the, the two that we use is if, if Grandma didn't cook it and eat it. We probably shouldn't. And for some people listening, that might be great grandma. And maybe they'd never met great grandma. So you need to get on YouTube and Google great grandma's cooking and understand what that means. But that's animal fats instead of canola oil, you know, like Mm -hmm. a really obvious example, or that's whole grain bread instead of white bread or, you know, whatever, whatever it's heirloom tomatoes instead of hydroponic GMO tomatoes. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, if we can't make it in our kitchen, we don't want to eat it. So we don't cook all our food. We like eating out. We like being social. We like yummy stuff but when we're when we're buying things if we couldn't refine that in our own kitchen you know why would we trust some big snazzy machine to take over that process it just mm. it just starts to get into the deep end for me it's yeah. like you, i can make lard i make lard at home all the time we get a really fatty rolled pork roast normally the ones that the customers won't buy because there's too much fat on it yeah. and we blast it in the oven and we collect all the lard and we've got We've got fat to cook with for the next few months. Mm. But try and make canola oil in home, yeah. in, in your kitchen. You know, you've you, you got to be – the cops are going to kick down the front door because they think you've got a meth lab going yeah. on.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, there, there's some great heuristics. I re- <laughs> really like those two. A couple that I use with patients is um, – one of them is a very common one. You you've, People have heard, only shop around the edges of the supermarket. And yep. this is because all the fresh food – I haven't heard that. I like a, that. Yeah, all the fresh food sits around the edges, and sure. it's
0: all the refrigeration space, and
1: mm-hmm. yeah. and all the refined food, the soft drink, the lollies, the chips, the candy, uh, the biscuits, the pastries, the, the breakfast cereals. Everything, or everything else, is in the middle aisles. So, and you know, you can these markets are also set up intentionally to funnel people into the middle aisles and past the candy aisle on the way to the the checkout but shopping around the, the aisles is a really good heuristic. Another one is base your diet on food that is perishable. So if it goes rotten, if you leave it for too long out outside or in the fridge, if it goes off after five, seven days, that is the food you should be eating and that should be making up the bulk of your diet. If you find yourself cooking or preparing meals, from food that's been sitting in the cupboard that's shelf stable well that's a red flag that should raise a red flag in in someone's head as to hang on this is likely going to be refined there's (coughs) there's some kind of process that's gone on to make this food stay shelf stable it's probably not going to be good
0: what's amazing about that before we were tying in human health with animal health wanting to eat things that perish I remember the first load of cattle that I received back in 2019 commodity steers from the sale yards that the stock agent organized for us. And it was obvious that they'd just been drenched because most good farmers will drench a cow and send it off to market so that the next, so that the buyer's not inheriting their mismanagement or, or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. And it was a very dry season. 2019 was very dry. It was the end of that long drought period coming into the massive bushfires that we had. And, These uh, cow patties, the the dung that sat on the ground, I think some of those patties were still there six months later. Yeah, was And and that that might be a partial reflection of our pastures because previously Mm. on my family's hobby block, we'd been set-stocking and doing Mm. what you did. But they sat there forever. Nothing ate them. And now my cattle, that nothing's had a drench as long as it's been on my farm. Some animals been around three or four years, never had a drench. And you'll see a cow patty disappear in three or four days. You know, in in, in peak season, maybe not in the um, depths of winter when the dung beetles have packed up for the season or whatever it might be, but incredible how they get gobbled up. And that brings you back to another heuristic, which I know Dr. Max is going to like. Not only are we what we eat, but we are what we eat eats. You know, that'd be a really easy benchmark. If a dung beetle won't eat the poo out of that cow, that's probably not the cow that I want to be eating or selling myself.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and it's it's reminiscent of the McDonald burger bun that gets yeah, sat on it the crossed bench. my mind when you said it. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's still in its perfect form, you know, a month later. So I wonder
0: if anybody ever walks past that and feels hungry. Yeah. <laughs> there has got to be someone.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Have you seen that video on YouTube? There's a little doco of a gentleman that's eaten eaten almost nothing but Big Macs his whole life, and he's collected all the He's an American. He's collected all the cardboard containers, and he's got thirty, forty thousand plus. Like it's a, it's a mind blowing number. But it's all he's eaten his whole life. Have you have you seen that? I haven't. No. It's a really interesting thing for me that people like we can punish ourselves so much. And like he he looks, and he's gone to the doc. He looks like a healthy ish guy. I guess mm. like a bit doughy middle aged later life man. You know, there's plenty of worse looking fellas than him around. Yeah. And and it's it's a really hard thing to wrap your head around, but on my farming journey, especially the last eighteen months, I've realised that some animals are just anti-fragile, like they are robust beings. And I believe, for the most part, like if you can get a if you can get a human weaned basically through infancy, we are anti-fragile. We can put up with a lot of crap. And on the farm, my pigs. Once you get a pig to eight week old and it's been on mother's milk those whole two months, they are anti fragile. They're 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 cockroaches, <laughs> you know, very hard to to kill or slow down. Dogs are the same. We're feeding our dog. I'm a big believer in feeding dogs a raw diet, not this, you know, charcoal kibble that we feed them, full of carbohydrates for a dog that's you know almost a carnivore, for all intents and purposes. But you look at them, it looks at you and it's smiling and it isn't wasting away to nothing. And I can understand why people have a hard time pairing up these natural systems that we're talking about because it looks like a dog. It looks healthy, but then you really start diving. We breed dogs on our property as well. You start doing the deep dive and life expectancy of a lot of these dogs has halved in the last hundred years. You know, you get accolades if your large dog grows to eight or nine years old. I oh, always had a good life. I oh, did, mm. you know, did little Chow Wow die. Well, oh, that's sad, but he was eight, old, eight years old. He had a good life. You look up 100 years ago those big dogs were living till they were 14 15 years old. Yeah. How would how yeah. do we go backwards now that we've got all these canine immunizations and 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 the heartworm tablets and we've got the nice the blueberry flavored dental sticks that they can chew on to clean their teeth and all these things but we've cut their life expectancy in half. Mm. Yeah, you know, I don't, I it, it's it's an interesting thing to try to communicate to consumers, I guess is what mm. I'm trying to say. Because mm. as soon as you start making these claims, you get called a heretic and you're normally a heretic from the experts. Yeah. So I talk about raw feeding my dogs and using species appropriate diets. And who do you think are the people that take issue with it? It's not the lady sitting at home with her little Maltese called Scooby. It's the vets Yeah. that get on and they're offended yeah. by the premise that your dog shouldn't eat
1: kibble. I mean, it's fascinating and it just speaks to the idea that industries, not only human health, not only uh, agriculture, but also vet vet and domestic small animal vet practice has all been influenced to be eating what is most, quite obviously, a species inappropriate diet, um, whatever that is for, for a lot of animals. And dogs and cats <clears throat> obviously have a very, very high evolved need for percentage of meat in their diet. And I mean, and sh- and, and that's another topic, and, and we could talk a little bit about a, a carnivore diet for humans because I know that you've been trying that out recently. There's a paper, I believe, by Mickey Bendewer, who is a paleo uh, anthropologist. And they they had some really interesting findings analyzing, I believe it was a radioactive carbon isotope in uh, Paleolithic or perhaps even earlier humans. And by analyzing this carbon isotope, they're able to estimate or graph or estimate the position on the trophic level of different organisms. And you could see... Based on this this isotope, perhaps a, a a cow, which is going to be eating grass, is lower down on a trophic level compared to a fox who's eating other animals. Sure. And th- their evidence was actually showed that, I think, about 13,000 years ago, it was humans, there was evidence that humans had what were the highest on the, ho- the trophic level, indicating that they were eating other carnivorous animals. So... To, to change tack a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with eating a mostly meat diet and how long you've done it for? And are you eating only walkie, walkie produce?
0: So I am almost two weeks into our version of carnivore. And I'll, I'll preface this that we don't believe this is necessarily a silver bullet. My wife and I are doing this. We're not forcing it on the kids the kids are getting what we would normally eat which would just be I guess a home-cooked whole foods diet Uh, they do both love meat as it is but I'm I'm a curious person you know I when I was a kid like a teenager I'd see an electric fence and I'd go I know that that's going to really hurt but I wonder how much and I'd grab it and I'm just a curious person. You, I read the blogs online and people's experiences, and it's not enough for me. I need to immerse in it. So I did a vegan diet a few years ago before we farming. You know, it might be five or six years ago. I did vegan for a couple of weeks, found it incredibly difficult. And people might laugh at this, but so much eating. My mouth was always sore and tired. Choo, 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 choo. I could just never fill myself up. I tried to do it properly, and I found it so hard reading all the labels, oh, that's got this in it, that's got this. I just found that. I didn't want to do vegetarian. Basically, my whole family's vegetarian. That's too easy. I thought vegan would be an experiment. We're doing the carnivore now for a few reasons. We've been doing a little bit of reading, and my wife's blood type is O-negative, and it was suggested that it's an appropriate diet for someone in that blood group, talking about different diets for different blood groups. and My wife, as I said earlier, has issues with gluten and dairy, so we thought we'd back off everything at the moment and do a bit of an exclusion diet. Myself being two weeks in, I've lost about four kilos and I've always been a heavy boy, ready to lose a couple kilos. I got married, I'm six foot, neat, and I got married at 105 kilos just about. So I was a bit pudgy. I look at my wedding photos and I think they're the worst photos of me that exist. But my wife married me at my heaviest. (laughs) You got to find a woman who'll marry you at your worst and then you got to pay her back by getting better. So I've lost about four kilos. I've lost the pant size, which is a lot of weight to lose in just a couple of weeks. And I think there must have been a lot of water retention or something going on with that, but I feel better. I'm eating a lot less. Everything I snack on all the time, historically is carbs because it's delicious and yummy. And because I can't eat carbs anymore, I'm not really snacking anymore. I might have a little piece of aged cheddar cheese or something. Uh, But day three, I was texting you about this, asking for help from the um, depths of carb withdrawal. I was absolutely screaming for carbohydrates on day three. And day five, all I thought about all day was things that had sugar in them, which I thought was really interesting how they appeared because I wouldn't say I necessarily have a high sugar diet, but when you eat nothing but meat, you have a no sugar diet all of a sudden. Mm. So they've been really interesting observations for me. Uh, at home we're already at home we only eat walkie farm produce we might buy a few organic bananas down at the local organic shops alma or something like that but if it's home if it's available for us to be homegrown we we eat local stuff but like i said earlier we well family and i we travel a lot and we dine out a bit because we're quite social so when we go out we just do the best that we can and i wouldn't mind throwing a little plug in here for something, if I may, Dr. Max, because my farm tours, everybody goes, Jake, all this is great. How do we make the change? And I'm convinced as a restaurant owner that that this one little tip, if widely practiced, widely practiced could make real change. And that's you sit down at the restaurant and you open the menu and it says local pork belly, you know, with freaking sun-dried apricots. That's the dish, whatever it is. When the waiter comes over, it says, oh, what would you like? You say, oh, I see you got local uh, pork here. Well, what sort of farm is that from? How, how's that pork raised? Oh, I'm not sure. I'll go and ask the chef. Yeah, I just, I'd, I'd like to know if it's a, a free-range sort of pig where it's outdoors or if it's in a, in a shed. That's all I'm really interested in. And then they come back and they go, oh, that's from the local uh, piggery, such and such a name. And you go, oh, thanks very much for that. I, I can't eat that. Uh, I'll get you grass-fed, grass-fed scotch. That's a really polite, it's not confronting. Uh, we haven't had to do mass protest. You haven't ruined that waiter's day. But I can absolutely guarantee you that if that happened to that waiter, for a it doesn't all have to be on the pork dish. If he had three or four people conscientiously object to food based on his production model within a week, there is no waiter that I've ever met that wouldn't pass that feedback onto the kitchen. And mm-hmm. if a chef who does the ordering and sets the menu gets that feedback, two or three times in a week that people won't buy his pork because it's been raised in a factory farm. He's going to be calling around going, where can I get some free-range pigs? Yeah. And for me, that's a really kind, gentle way, not saying you guys should be ashamed of yourself, I can't eat that crap. It's a way of saying, I'd love to support you more if you could find the foods that we actually valued as consumers. Yeah, And, and, and I think it's a powerful tool. And I, I, I'm becoming a little bit of a snake with this, because I will actually see items on menus that I know are factory farmed meals and I'm not going to order them, but I'll pretend I want to order it just to send the waitress back to the kitchen to give the feedback to the chef and they come back, oh, no, it's factory farm pork. Thanks very much. I thought it might be. I'll get the pasture-raised chicken.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, that, again, that speaks to the idea that we were talking about previously, which is shaping consumer preferences is going to be key to improving the quality of not only the produce that's offered to the consumer but also the food that's being served in in, soup, in cafes and in restaurants. And I mean you as you, you said, I mean it's probably not going to take a lot of people conscious people who care about what they're eating to, to raise a point and and that's probably going to be sufficient enough to, to change that. That supermarket or that uh, restaurants practices, and the, so, the number one I thing mean,
0: that I get from farmers hmm. is why they don't change their models to this is because Jake doesn't pay. But where are the consumers? How am I going to sell all my meat? But if the consumer said we're here and we're ready to pay for it, there's a lot of farmers that would love to stop using so many drugs uh, and, and and things, but they feel like they're in a box because they've got to they've got to pay the mortgage, they've they've got to put the kids through school, whatever it might be. So consumers stepping up to the plate and voting with the wallet is you know one of the pieces of the puzzle
1: and totally and and I guess in terms of empowering other farmers to move towards this model which is a more direct to consumer model do you have any ideas I mean it on the surface it might seem like oh we have to set up uh, advertising we have to have a website we have to Sort out all these things that most farmers probably don't want to even think about. They just want to raise their cattle, get get them sold, truck them off, and then not think about them anymore. So, so what is your idea, or what are your suggestions about getting more farmers interested in a regenerative but direct to consumer model rather than this centralized model?
0: I, I think about this a lot because we're going to need broad acre producers on our on our side to to feed the world and to um, change landscapes and to heal landscapes and and restore animal function, all these different things. But I completely accept that not everybody wants to do what I do, which is deal with emails and phone calls and Facebook messages all day long, people going, does your bacon have nitrites in it? Is do you feed any grain? What drenches do you use? Uh, Do you use an electric prodder on your farm? Like this constant, like I personally love it because getting that immediate feedback loop from consumers really helps us uh, navigate decision making on the farm as aligned to our base's needs. But there's a lot of farmers out there that would probably love to do something a little bit more holistic. And if the only viable way to, because the management costs, uh, the, the the operation cost of the way we do farm is a lot less in inputs, but a lot more in labor and that has to get paid for. So, you know, these farmers, there's a lot of farmers that don't want to deal with the public. They want to farm. You know, that's why they're farmers probably. <laughs> that's why they're in their paddock with their cows because it's probably that's their sort of person, one, mm-hmm. one that moves and doesn't back chat and talk about Facebook or something. But I I, I think that there's a, there's a middle road that the, there's room in the middle for somebody to fill this gap, and it's probably people like me. I love selling, uh, setting up systems and operations. So, and I've been I've been wrestling with this a lot within our own operation because I get phone calls every week. Oh, Jake, saw you on the news that you're selling grass-fed beef. I've got grass-fed beef. If you ever want any over the hook, I'll sell them to you. And some of these producers are genuinely top-notch. Holistic management, Alan Savory, sole producers doing a great job and the meat would probably be really good, but I'm advertising that it's all wonky raised meat. But there's a sort of a ceiling on that. So I think there's room for people like me to facilitate, to do the branding, to do the marketing, to do the selling, mm. and then be the conduit to buy. And I guess that's what a lot of these certifications are when you can get grass-fed and finished stamp. But I've been I've looked at and heard so many horror stories about all these certifications. I've mm. sort of run out of steam with all of them. So I don't really have an exact answer for you, Max, but I know that the, the 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 books need to make sense for the farmer, otherwise he's not gonna produce that way. And that's not a comment that the current system makes sense. Mm. You know, you look at your your fertilizer and your your pesticide inputs this year are triple what they cost last year. That doesn't make sense on a balance sheet. Yeah. Is anyone paying triple for corn? Like I don't think so, or, mm. or wheat. But I think that there needs to be something in the middle to help these farmers that need more of the retail dollar to make it worthwhile but don't want to deal with the public or just can't set up on a dime because their operations are so large, where would they shift all that volume? Mm. If you're a farmer turning off a 1,000 cows a year, and wanted to do it direct to market, you would have enormous processing headaches with your local abattoir in, in, mm. in the boning rooms. You would basically have to start to do it yourself.
1: Mm. And just a quick point for listeners, the Alan Savory is one of the godfathers, would you say, Jake, of, of holistic management and regenerative grazing. So he's got a great TED Talk, and I'd recommend everyone watch that to get a bit, bit of an idea, background about regenerative grazing. But yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. And that's a fascinating insight on um, how you could create or have have certain small number of intermediaries, regenerative intermediaries who are liaising with farmers who are doing a fully regenerative grass-fed, <clears throat> grass-finished operation, but don't want the, the logistical or the marketing headaches of dealing directly with, with consumers. Because it, it, it does sound like that could be too much of a deal breaker and obstacle for for a lot of farmers who just want to spend their time and effort creating the most, well, growing the highest quality grass and um, creating the highest, highest quality beef. We're, we're approaching an hour and I know you've got a bit of a hard stop. I just want to really briefly touch on the, there's a, a couple of wall key pillars and I think we've covered most of them. Um, I'll quickly say them out, and Jake, maybe you, if you want to add something to to any of these. So, one was welfare advocacy, two was environmental backbone, three community conscience, four healing food, and five was profitable farms. And I guess we've talked, we've covered quite a lot about each of those pillars. Um, is there anything you want to say about any specific one of those before we finish up?
0: The thing I like about my five pillars, and and we're currently redeveloping our website, and we're trying to figure out a better way to communicate this. But the five pillars are they're actually they're not pillars. It's actually a flywheel, because if you look after animal welfare, which is caring for the animal or stewarding the animal in its context, you know, in its environment, in its context. Number two, which is environmental backbone, is automatically taken care of. But then I believe if you look at If you look after animal welfare and the environment, you're automatically going to be producing a healing food, a nutrient-dense, high-quality food. If you do those three things, you're going to attract people and build community. And the last step, which might be the hardest one out of all of them, is to turn a profit because you've got to charge what you're worth and not be ashamed about it. I like that wheel, and I'm unashamed about the profit thing because I don't want to just be doing another 200 pigs next year. I want to do 200 pigs this year and 500 pigs next year and 10,000 pigs the year after that. Because these animals don't deserve to be raised in sheds. Landscapes deserve to be massaged and restored. And people deserve to be fed food that actually makes them feel better and not worse. Mm. So they all feed into each other for me. And interesting thing about the environmental backbone, it's a bit of a weird phrase, environmental backbone. Like you might just say environmental care or, um, you know, or, or, or land companionship. I'm sure you could think of something pretty fluffy that the greenies would love. I put environmental backbone in there for me because it takes them backbone to always care for the environment. It's mighty tempting sometimes to let the cattle overgraze something because you couldn't be bothered to, because you're sick. You don't want to go out and move them or it's raining too much or you did your feed budgeting wrong or um, you're worried you're going to get the tractor bogged and the only way to easily move the pigs is to use the tractor and you don't want to trudge around in the mud getting pig poo all over your boots. And it's like, hang on a second, you make this claim to your clients your community have some backbone and get out there and do the work you know uh, a firm firm believer you know to work by the sweat of your brow and that's a little i've never told anyone that before actually but i've never discussed that but that for me is a little internal uh jab in the kidneys (laughs) get
1: out there that's great that's fantastic and yeah i mean profit is anything has you have to have a profitable operation and especially if we're going to expand access to this high-quality food to people, then it's going to need to be a profitable operation. Um, And on that note, I mean, it it reminds me of the the work that Will Harris from White Oak Pastures is doing and the story that he's had over the past more than decade in terms of creating economic value within his community. Uh, I believe it's in georgia in the u.s and lufton georgia and how the process of industrial agriculture has basically had had basically drained the lifeblood out of that rural american town and his operation again in the same vein as as yours jake or i mean you're, you're paying homage to him in many ways is basically reinvigorated this community and has the number of new people that they've been able to employ and create economic value, create economic economic empowerment, has basically revived this this town. And I don't think there's a better illustration of the need for profitability and economic viability of this system if we're actually going to enact change on on a large scale.
0: Absolutely. Will Harris is a massive hero of mine. And, and anyone listening, if you haven't seen any of his stuff, jump on YouTube. And I think the video is called 10,000 Beating Hearts. It's a really good, uh, bubble wrapped up version of what he does, you know, tied up version. It's quick, but he's inherited a family farm, put his nuts on the line, gone into debt from having no debt, built an on-site, USDA-inspected abattoir, gone direct to market, just done an an incredible job and a full 180 and, like you said, revitalized this town. Mm -hmm. Really interestingly, on the profit thing, there was a clip of his online that I was listening to and he talks about how he runs a break-even operation and what he meant by that, I I believe, and I hope I'm not putting words in um, Will's mouth, but you riffed on it a little bit, isn't that they try not to make money goes back into the industry, Mm. like back into his operation. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, reinvestment in the business. I guess you could, same concept.
0: Yep. Yeah, exactly. Buy more land Mm. from neighbors who maybe their business isn't going that well or the succession plan didn't work, kids went to get Mm. a town job, whatever it was. Mm. Put more animals on it, steward it better, supply more people the food that they need for their bodies and, and get on with it. So it's not that profit's a dirty word. It's that, like, what do you do when you've got enough? Like, not everybody is interested in just stuffing money in their pillow and hiding on it. You know, a lot of people yeah. want to want to do more stuff yeah. with it. I Every spare two cents I have to wrap my, rub my fingers together, I'm driving up to Canberra and buying more Nguni cattle to put on the farm.
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's a great, I guess, a great place to end it. And we've got a lot more to talk about, especially this exciting new breed of cattle, the Ngunis. But I guess I just want to end this uh, episode with, I guess, a vision from you about how you see Walkie Farms and where you'd like to be perhaps within the next five years and and your vision for Walkie Farms and maybe even regenerative agriculture more broadly in Australia.
0: Well, at the moment, our, our farm business is run on 200 acres and they're both lease blocks that I lease off my parents. Uh, In five years, I would love to be living on land with my family. I'd love to have an on-site above-board abattoir so we could cut and process and slaughter our own animals on-site so they don't have to go on trucks. I'd love to have staff quarters there. We're homeschooling our children with with some community around the place, so I'd love to be able to facilitate that on-farm. And it's not about being – we're not doomsday preppers. we're, We're not isolationists. People think when I talk like this, people think that we want to be uh, out, out on a farm doing school by ourselves because we want to be out of the community. When you're in town here, I've got, I live, I live in town here and I've got six neighbors and I know one of them. But there's not a, and that, that's as much maybe my fault as it, as it might be theirs. But there's not a whole lot of community here. We believe that that centralizing our production on a farm that we we live on and really doing life with these people. Uh, will give us a quality of life that you know we're hungry for and it'll it'll help us scale and and touch more people with our healing foods you know we've got 60 cows 60 breeding cows at the moment i want a thousand let's go for it dr max eats a lot of liver so i've got to keep that inguni liver going for him
1: fantastic well um jake that's a that's a great place to end and yeah thanks for coming on and we got a lot more to talk about, so yeah, we'll, we'll pick this up, this thread up in a, another convo. Thanks for having. Me. Thanks for listening to the Regenerative Health Podcast. I hope this episode helped you better understand some aspect of improving your lifestyle for optimal health. If you enjoyed this episode, then share it out with friends and family. Leaving a five-star review on Apple or Spotify podcasts also helps spread the message. Thank you and see you next time.